Hello and welcome to this edition of the IFS uh, Zooms In. I'm Paul Johnson, Director of the Institute for Fiscal Studies, and I'm delighted today to be joined by my colleague Luke Sibietta and by Becky Francis, who's Chief Executive of the Education Endowment Foundation. And today we're going to be talking about the loss of education that young people have faced over the period of the last year, the loss of learning, what the long-term consequences of that might be, and then rather importantly, what we might do about it. Um, I'm particularly pleased to be joined by Becky for this because the organisation that she runs, the Education Endowment Foundation, is very focused on evidence-based ways of improving the uh, learning outcomes of uh, young people aged uh, off school, um, of school age. Uh, and Becky, perhaps you'd um, like to start partly just by introducing yourself and partly by saying something about what you at the EF have learnt over the last year about what some of the problems uh, schools and pupils have faced since COVID struck. Thanks very much, Paul. Well, I'm Becky Francis, and I'm Chief Executive of the Educational Endowment Foundation, and we're a charity focused on supporting and improving state education 3 to 18, um, with a particular focus on narrowing the gap uh, for social disadvantage. Um, and of course, uh, during the pandemic, we've been focused particularly on supporting effective practice to remediate some of the effects of the pandemic. Um, in relation to you know, the impact of the pandemic uh, on young people and their learning, the research is already showing that that's going to be really profound. And um, the schools have been doing, of course, an amazing job um, and teachers working tirelessly to try to find innovative ways to support young people's learning and particularly in the periods of partial school closures. Um, but nevertheless, we know that that learning loss is going to be substantial. So thinking about evidence-informed ways uh, to support young people has never been more important. And Luke, I mean, you and colleagues have done quite a lot of research surveying um, parents and students about this loss of learning. What, what, what do we know about the scale of it and to some extent the extent to which it's been distributed differently across different sorts of families and children? Yes, absolutely. So we're, we're gradually now getting a wide range of evidence showing that children were falling behind in terms of their skill development over the particularly over the summer when schools were closed to most pupils um, we're already seeing children falling behind about two to three months in numeracy and literacy skills um, particularly at younger ages um, who have clearly find it much harder to do remote learning it's much harder to do things independently if you're still learning to read and count um, and those are also quite sensitive periods in children's lives so missing out on some of that formative education during that period um, could be very challenging and have quite long-run consequences as well. And that's before we start even considering the role of uh, socialisation in terms of helping young people um, uh, get into their education. Becky, that's, um, uh, that, that issue of the youngest children is something that um, you raised with me when we were talking about this before we started Recording most of the debate that I've heard has been 
particularly about those who are due to take exams this year and also around older children. But um, it's interesting that both you and Luke are bringing up this issue about what's happening right at the beginning of children's school careers, where I suspect many of us kind of might take the view that, well, you know, if you're five or six and you're missing two or three months of schooling now, well, you know, you've got, you know, 10 more years to make up for it. Is, is it really a big deal? Yes, we don't know yet um, what the cumulative impacts, of course, will be and all the different rates at which um, the learning loss will be mitigated. Um, we do know, of course, that struggles are harder for parents to support younger children who may need more help and supervision with their home learning. And, of course, we're also concerned about the very youngest kids, too. Um, we funded some studies looking at the earliest years. Um, and, of course, even um, that very early socialisation um, and interaction with other children and adults that we usually take for granted with our toddlers often haven't been possible in the last year. So the impacts are profound. Uh, the Outstanding question, of course, is how quickly uh, those can be remediated. Luckily, most kids uh, are very resilient. But nevertheless, um, as we've all agreed, the challenges here have been unprecedented. In terms of the sort of general um, picture across the board, the EEF were one of the first organisations to draw on prior uh, robust uh, bodies of research literature around uh, learning loss due to school closures of various types and to um, form a view of the extent of uh, impact of school closures on the um, gaps, both in relation to learning loss, but particularly uh, the emergence of an even greater gap for social disadvantage. And our research with the National Foundation for Education Research looked at um, six to seven-year-olds' attainment in maths and reading um, in autumn 2020 to see whether their test, test scores were impacted by the closures in the previous term. And we found that there had indeed been a really significant impact on learning. So on average, pupils were around two months behind where previous cohorts had been uh, uh, at that time. And what was of particular concern was the large gap between disadvantaged pupils and their classmates of around seven months, which has also grown compared to prior cohorts. There was also evidence of a growth in the number of young people who were just unable to actually engage the tests effectively. And um, so all of this is, is indicative, I guess, of the scale of impact that we're seeing here. Yeah, and uh, that point you make about the the growth in the gap between the more and less advantaged um, pupils is one that I think uh, a lot of the evidence is really bringing out. And, and, and Luke, you've, uh, with colleagues, looked at, at this in, in, in particular, I, I think. And I think it's fair to say that right across the age spectrum, it's those from poorer backgrounds who perhaps not surprisingly have found it more difficult to access support at home, but also some evidence that um, schools with less advantaged um, pupils, certainly in the first lockdown, were less active than schools with more advantaged pupils. Yes, absolutely. So 
there's now a, a huge range of surveys showing that pupils from disadvantaged backgrounds and low-income families found remote learning much harder. That's partly because they didn't necessarily always have the right devices or tablets or internet connection that enabled them to access resources. But it's also things like being able to find a quiet study space to do to do to do, to do your work, which is a much harder thing for policy to try and do something about because you can't really just suddenly provide a quiet study space in an individual's house. Um, but and uh, w- w- as you say, um, schools differed in terms of the offer they made to um, pupils uh, over the last lockdown. I think there's been uh, quite a lot of improvement uh, right across the sector and a lot of learning that's happened as a result of what worked and what didn't during the first lockdown. So I think... Um, I think there's probably a better offer than there is at the moment, but absolutely there's likely to be a large rise in the disadvantage gap. And as Becky said, I think one of the most concerning and potentially most difficult issues to deal with is around motivation um, and people just turning off from learning. So it may well be that these, these pupils who are just unwilling to engage with these tests, it's kind of just part of they don't really fancy a test and it's not a huge problem. But if it's a wider problem about a lack of engagement with school and a lack of engagement with education more generally, that is much harder to deal with and will have much far-reaching consequences. And currently we've only seen it for younger pupils. But if if it's also happening for 14, 15-year-olds, how you re-engage and and reconnect 14, 15-year-olds with education is a massive problem. And Becky, I think that speaks to um, this issue of the, the potential long-run effects of this loss of education. Because I say, you can look at this and say, well, look, you know, this is three or four months out of um, 12, 13 years um, of education. Maybe that's not such a big deal. But there's so much evidence that each year of education builds on what went before and that uh, once you lose children, it's quite hard to get them back again and I, and I don't know how much, how much do you think we know about the sort of the trade-off between what you were saying earlier which is actually most children are pretty resilient on the one hand and maybe they'll bounce back and on the other uh, this concern that as it were once you've lost them you've lost them I mean do you, do you have a sense of how that's going to pan out or is this something at the moment we're really going to have to take it keep an eye on and respond to when we find out? Yeah, I think the point um, raised about engagement is a really important one, and we might come back to that. But thinking about sort of outcomes uh, and life chances for the time being, I guess it's really hard to separate out the implications of actually missing learning and its impact on progression and success Uh, for future studies and career, for example, and separate that from the signal that's provided by exam credentials. So in relation to that latter signaling, if exam results are pegged to the same as last year, the impact on trajectories might be mitigated. But the impact of a lack of curriculum knowledge and skills could have a longer term impact, of course, and it will be really important that we find creative ways to address that. So I guess, you know, you you could speculate about potential lower effects, 
Um, if, uh, what, what, you know, a, a diagnosis of learning loss is happens very quickly and we find really effective ways to support uh, young people to remediate that um, and move forward in that way. Um, and indeed ways to um, deal with uh, more, more flexible admissions and so forth to support young people moving through the system. Um, but on the other side of that coin, you know, we might see higher levels of impact. Of course, we don't yet know whether there might be further disruption and lockdown. Um, but also there are kind of school level and wider sector level uh, uh, elements to consider there as well. So if that diagnosis isn't successfully enacted and steps taken quickly to address, you know, that would then have more uh, significant implications. Um, and indeed, if we don't think of those, how to uh, mitigate the wider structural impacts that could impede uh, young people's kind of learning and career journeys. I think just to capture um, some of the issues that have already been raised, you know, um, there's actually very little evidence around older pupils. It may be that some pupils in this age group have completely disengaged, particularly if they've got lower prior attainment. Um, and while learning loss has been experienced in younger age groups we and we've been able to um really evidence this empirically we don't know how that will multiply over the course of their education um just to to for example there you know we know that low reading levels make it hard to engage with other subjects so it's really um a lot riding now i think on the speed and effectiveness of uh, recovery at different levels. So Luke, um, Becky's raised the issue um, of the long run effects of this on, on earnings and so on. Um, and, and there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot wrapped up in that. I mean, she, she talked specifically about the extent to which exams passes are telling you uh, something about something that's really useful in the labor market. So you've actually learned stuff that's useful all the extent to which they're um, really a signal of your position in the in, in the hierarchy that uh, you know you're getting a whole bunch of A stars at GCSE or A level isn't necessarily equipping you with things you're going to use in your job, but it's telling uh, telling employers who is the you know, who's the best and and the brightest. Now, if it was just the latter, if it was purely about signalling and people sort of maintained a, a ranking, then perhaps it wouldn't matter very much that we were losing um, three, six months um, of education. Uh, but if it's the former, if, as we hope, we're actually learning something useful, um, then we might expect this loss of education to have real long-run effects on people's lifetime earnings and so on. What, what, what evidence do we have on whether losing uh, several months of schooling really matters in the long run for people's uh, futures? Absolutely, and and there is kind of a, a competition in the in the literature between the signalling model of education you describe, kind of like credentials and trying to find what your rank in innate ability is, and the model that focuses on human capital development and the skills you've accumulated and how that allows you to be more productive in the labour market. And in reality, there's evidence that suggests that both mechanisms happen and they're a real thing. So getting formally getting a grade C in English or getting five good GCSEs that did actually make a difference to your earnings, partly because of the signal 
it, it, it gives to employers in terms of when they're doing recruitment. But there's also a huge, well, a huge, huge body of evidence showing that higher skills and higher education levels and higher levels of schooling lead to higher levels of productivity, higher levels of earnings, higher levels of GDP, and that there are various channels by which this occurs. It can occur through people being more productive because of the skills and knowledge they've gained. It can come through higher levels of investment. It can come through technological growth, through people pushing the barriers of knowledge and being able to generate new ideas and innovation. But we also do have um, evidence from previous crises and disruptions of schooling that suggests that these losses to earnings can be very real and very significant. There's um, obviously every crisis is unique to some extent, and you have to be careful about translating over from one to the other. But one kind of interesting example is a series of teacher strikes that happened in Argentina in the 1980s. And obviously Argentina is a million miles away from the, the UK, and I wouldn't want to equate the present situation to a teacher strike in any way but primary school pupils ended up losing about half a year of school normal schooling in in during that crisis and much the literature on that episode has found that children then ended up being uh having lower earnings in their adulthood by about two to three percent per year now two three percent per year doesn't sound very much and it's sort of maybe maybe we can have it have it have not but when you accumulate it over children's lifetimes it gets into very very big numbers indeed well, I don't know about your geography teacher, Luke, but I'm pretty sure Argentina isn't a million miles away. But, um, <laughs> um, it's not, uh, and I think I mean, that's not just, that's not the only um, example, is it, of, of work that's shown that additional time at school is uh, you know, makes a real difference, including work in 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 England, looking at the effects of raising school leaving um, ages. Uh, but I guess it's also. Uh, goes back to the issue we were talking about a minute ago, which is about the unequal effect of this. Well, you, the, the, the numbers you're quoting are averages, uh, but I guess that one of the things we might be most worried about is if, if that average is true, it's not going to be true for everybody. There are going to be some people probably not much affected at all, and some people affected quite a lot more than that. And I think we could assume that those affected not much would be the better off children, and those affected rather more on the whole will be those who are doing less well in any case. Absolutely. Um, and so we're already seeing the very very clear evidence about bigger uh, losses in educational progress and skill development for pupils from more disadvantaged families. Um, and if that carries on into educational achievement at GCSE, age 18, and to higher levels of education, then that will undoubtedly feed through into higher levels of income inequality and higher levels of earnings inequality and all the social ills that come with higher levels of income inequality that are incredibly hard and expensive to deal with and to some extent take generations to fix. Um, so if we, if we can not, not predict with certainty, but if, we, if there's a very significant risk of a high rise in income inequality and a reduction in average earnings, um, then it would seem to be prudent um, to try and find out ways now to try and prevent that from happening because the mu- much of the research associated with inequality suggests that these are things that are very, very hard to close once they've established themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, just to concur with Luke there, it's doubly unfortunate that the pattern of the pandemic 
um, has really exacerbated gaps even further. Um, when we look at some of the effect areas most strongly affected, um, and we know that uh, social, socially disadvantaged and various minority ethnic groups and so forth are more likely to catch COVID because of um, whether it's their living uh, conditions or um, working patterns and so forth. And then, of course, compounded further by the fact that within the period of school closures, um, disadvantaged families because of issues around wealth, housing, and the way that uh, uh, Luke has already characterised, um, you know, that, that that learning loss will have affected them more um, than their more affluent counterparts. Um, we can see the way that the um, pandemic has a sort of multifaceted, um, stronger impact on social disadvantage and why those gaps are growing at the rate that they that, that, that the evidence is showing they are um, over the period in relation to education. So finding a sustained and holistic policy response is going to be really important. And of course, it will be also important that that, that response is well resourced. Well, let's come on to exactly that then, then Becky. Um, uh, what do we do? What do we do now? Um, you, you, in fact, at the um, Education Endowment Foundation, are uh, effectively uh, in charge of the National uh, Tutor Program, which I think is one of the uh, main uh, government responses so far. But perhaps you could just say a little bit about what that is um, and then go on to your views about some of the other things that we could do to make up for some of these gaps overall, and in particular, uh, these gaps that have opened up between the more and the less affluent. Yeah, thanks, Paul. Um, and tutoring, I think, does have very strong promise, and I'll come to that. Um Building on what I said before about a sustained and multifaceted approach, I guess the other key elements would be that this approach needs to be evidence-led and secondly, that it needs to be done in consultation with the profession. Um, you know, it's really important that this is a holistic and collaborative uh, uh, approach going forward because we're going to need all the creativity we can get. It will need to be focused on the short, the medium and the long term, too. Um, and as I've already said, it will need to be focused on compensation within schools, that learning recovery and so forth. But also, importantly, on mitigation of impact, uh, particularly on kids as they're pro either, either progressing into different stages of their learning or indeed leaving uh, education to go into the workforce. Um, for me, the, we need to think about a tiering of approaches, and I think this is where we'd be guided by the evidence as well. We know that what makes the biggest impact on um, progress in learning is actually high quality teaching. And while that might not sound very catchy compared to many of the other ideas circulating in the system at the moment, um, it is actually the evidence led approach that's going to make the biggest impact. So actually supporting and resourcing um, high quality continuing professional development, uh, strategies that help retain teachers by reducing workload and so forth are all really important elements of any kind of recovery program um, to address young people's learning loss. 
Then we have uh, specific programs, evidence-led programs like uh, tuition and so forth. And then we have um, holistic strategies that enable readiness to learn. And there I'm thinking of um, approaches such as engagement with parents effectively, um, social and economic, uh, um, um, social and emotional learning support, behaviour policies and so forth, and all of those important points about school readiness, which will be uh, even more important um, in the present climate. Um, Coming back to the uh, evidence behind particular programmes, it was um, the collation and curation of uh, the international literature uh, that really guided us towards tuition as a promising approach to um, support young people uh, in the climate of the pandemic and particularly being able to provide that bespoke uh, response to individual needs around, around particular elements of learning loss. So the evidence is very strong that both one-to-one and small group tuition um, have have, uh, strong uh, impacts on uh, learning gain. Um, And as I've said, you know, this seemed to be a really effective proposition in the context of the pandemic. So we have supported uh, um, the NTP, the National Tutoring Programme, to roll out. And we are leading uh, the tuition partners element of that programme, which has commissioned um, 30 plus high quality providers that have met our quality criteria uh, then to provide tuition Um, through schools uh, right across England, um, reaching every national area. And do you know, or how will you know, how effective um, that is being? So there's an independent evaluation being conducted by the National Foundation for Education Research. Um, They are already um, beginning to provide their interim findings, and that's great because that's feeding into the practice uh, to ensure the effective programme. But they will be producing their report separately um, following the the end of our delivery element, uh, which finishes um, in the summer. Luke, what about scale here? Um, I mean, the, uh, the the tutoring program that Becky's been talking about sounds, in a sense, all well and good, but the um, but the amount of money being spent on it is relatively limited. And I think your sort of, you know, I mean, I don't mean to be rude, but your sort of back of the envelope sort of um, indications of the scale of learning loss suggest that the amount of money that we might need to be spending is 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 multiples of what the government has currently committed is that is that is that broadly right i i think that's right and i think i think it's important to start by being uh positive about the role of uh tutoring um as becky says there is very good evidence behind um the role that tutoring can play particularly one-to-one or one-to-small group um uh tutoring programs um and i'm sure it will do much good Um, The difficulty is the scale of the problem, because we're not talking about a crisis that's affected a small number of disadvantaged pupils in one local authority where we can do really effective trials and and tests. We're talking about an entire generation across all school year groups that have potentially missed out on large amounts of learning. And if we're talking about one to one and a half million pupils, disadvantaged pupils, the kind of numbers uh, eligible for free school meals, 
being able to find enough tutors to help those those pupils catch up is an enormous um, uh, su- supply side problem. Um, and as you said, uh, just back of the envelope calculations, I don't think that that's rude. I think that's exactly what the calculations were. We'd normally be pupils have lost about half a year of normal schooling, and we'd normally spend about thirty billion for half a year of schooling in the U- in, in across the UK. Um, at the moment, we're spending about one to one and a half billion on catch-up programs uh, across the UK, with about two hundred and fifty to three hundred and fifty million so far through the national tutoring program. Um, and as I said, I think the national tutoring program will have good effects, but the policy response I don't think is yet at the scale to deal with the scale of the of the problem itself. I mean, let me just re- repeat that for, for, for listeners. Um, we spend about £60 billion a year on schooling. Um, if you think that children have lost up to half a year of schooling, in a sense, that's £30 billion worth or £30 billion that you might think might need to get spent. Now, I don't think you're suggesting that you know the answer is £30 billion, but I think you're giving a pretty clear indication that a billion or two probably isn't really in the right ballpark. Exactly. And I think we should kind of think about it in, in the way that we thought about providing that education in the first place. As a society, we already decide year on year that it's worth spending the huge amount that it costs to provide schooling, £60 billion, because we think it generates benefits to us as a society, economically, socially, culturally, that far exceed the £60 billion that goes into it. So if we if we're talking about trying to help children catch up with half a year of missed normal schooling we should be perhaps thinking about those num those kinds of numbers tens of billions of pounds to try and help them catch up because we we already are already decided as a society that it's worth the investment all right well let me come to you first then i'll come to becky um supposing the government was going to spend i don't know even 10 or 15 billion how, how should it spend it what should we actually do well i think i'd to some extent, um, uh, defer to Becky's earlier answer, um, which is the what we know to be the most effective form of education and the effective form of catch-up is time with a high-quality teacher in a high-quality learning environment. We know that that's the most effective way to learn, and we should use that as kind of our benchmark. Um, and in the article I wrote recently, I, I, I suggested about the need for radical and innovative ways to try and increase instructional time and I think we've got to think about both quantity and quality here and I think I was probably in danger of being not radical enough Um, so I assessed examples like lengthening the school day lengthening the school year which are, are now very much in vogue in policy discussions but perhaps we should be thinking about much more radical ways to transform the offer that we make to young people with on, on the basis that time with a high quality teacher is the best way of providing a, a good education and good catch up. So Becky, where are all these teachers who have got lots of time on their hands um, and are keen <laughs> to come and do additional work, having been um, uh, you know, run pretty uh, run uh, pretty um, frazzled by the, the, the current situation? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think um, bearing in mind the uh, levels of exhaustion in the profession and also actually among pupils, you know, it's been a really challenging time. Um, never more so. But nevertheless, um, I think Luke and I are absolutely aligned that investment in teaching and teachers um, has been actually never more important. Uh, it, I, I do think that there is a risk of overlooking both the evidence and, and this need um, with the attraction of kind of quick and appealing sounding solutions. Actually, the evidence on extending school time um, is pretty limited. You know, the evidence suggests a small positive impact, um, it, it, again, especially if used for targeted support. But of course, it is very expensive. Um, and the suggestions that we've heard about, for example, asking pupils to repeat the year and so forth, um, are both not evidence-based, but also um, kind of logistically and emotionally untenable, I think. Um, so focusing on how we can support teachers and, and, and in relation to Luke's challenge about radicalism, um, really thinking about creative ways to uh, retain um, and attract uh, uh, teachers to the profession, um, I, I think will be very productive. We, we can see, um, partly due to the pandemic, there's um, strong uptake for initial teacher training, but some of those uh, uh, budding teachers will have struggled to find placements and so forth in the pandemic year. So it's going to be doubly important that they're well supported. To be fair on the government, um, through their suite of um, teacher career focused uh, programmes, the uh, early career framework, the recalibration of their um, MPQs and so forth, um, they are attending to supporting professional career paths. But I think that all of that needs to be rocket fueled. And we might even be thinking about, you know, further incentives around teacher pay and so forth um, to be really thinking career creatively um, about how we can recognise and develop the profession even for, further. Um, really trying to think about opportunities and long-term goods that might come out of the pandemic. Well, it sounds like the answer is teachers, 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 that the, um, the, 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 the only way we're going to respond to this is by uh, having more teachers, supporting the teachers that we have and giving them the resources that they need and in a sense that's not a very um you know easy i mean that's certainly not an, an easy answer it's not a, the sort of some of you say some of the glib let's get the kids to repeat a year or bring them into school during summer holiday type answers which as you say uh, may uh, may not go down terribly well either with the kids or the or the um or the teachers uh, but um, but that brings us, uh, Luke, I think to our, my, my last question, which is that Becky's talking about, you know, what might turn into quite long term change, particularly if we change the way that we're um, thinking about teaching and supporting the teaching workforce. I mean, do you think this is a, an opportunity in any sense for any kind of more positive and radical change to the way that we um, deliver schooling um, uh, in this country? I think if we look back to previous instances in history where schooling or education or just life in general has been massively disrupted, 
um, we look back to um, naturally to the to the first and second world war, um, and we talk a lot about sort of the camaraderie and the the extra extra skills that we learnt through the war. But I think one overlooked part of of that experience is that each each of those world wars was followed by a massive transformation of the education system and big ambitions for what education can do to children's lives. After the First World War, we had the 1918 Fisher Act, which increased the school leaving age to 14, um, which sounds like a limited ambition these days, but in those days was quite a big change. After the Second World War, we had the, well, almost after the 1944 Butler Act, which uh, increased the school leaving age to 15 and planned to increase it to 16, though we never got quite around to doing that until the early 70s, and also introduced free secondary education. Previously, many children were having to pay for secondary secondary school up until nineteen up until the late nineteen forties. So, and these past disruptions to schooling, we've then gone on to make these really big transformative changes, and maybe that's what we should be thinking about now, particularly in terms of engaging the teaching profession. Perhaps we should be thinking about what is the positive vision of education and schooling, or or, or probably education more generally that we can all kind of rally behind and try and find out how we do it and how we pay for it. And this could be, I don't, I don't want to really have an example because I'm sure I'd I, I pick the wrong one, but picking some huge transformation of educational skills and qualifications, working out as a nation how we do it and then perhaps how we pay for it. Come on, Becky, Luke has, uh, Luke's dodged the question <laughs> by not saying exactly what he'd like to do. What, 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 what would you like to see come out of it? Well, I think I've talked a lot about supporting the teaching profession, and so I'll I'll reiterate that point. Um, I've also talked a little bit about the principles for recovery, both in terms of the sort of focus on uh, what works and and what we know to be effective, but also sustained, well-resourced, as Luke says, and and collaborative. Um, The the last point I'd just like to return to is the point about um, for young people that that left uh, education or or went off into higher education in their careers, whether last summer or will be doing so this summer, and how to support them. Um, I do think that as the cohorts move through the system and we recognise that they will have lost out um, on particular curriculum areas and indeed you know, potentially um, on broader areas of learning. A focus, a renewed focus on lifelong education and uh, adult learning and the ability for uh, young people to step back into education to catch up or, 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 or draw on additional uh, sort of compensatory elements uh, as their learning loss becomes revealed later on in their careers will be really important. So whether it's thinking about ideas like learning vouchers um, and so on, but really uh, regalvanizing questions about lifelong learning, which have been a bit out of fashion, perhaps uh, pre-pandemic. Well, thank you. I was going to wrap up there, but let let me put my own tempeneth into that particular issue. I mean, I do think there's a real problem with our current system we know that if people fall at one hurdle they find it very difficult to pick themselves up and get over the next hurdle so just missing out on a grade c or now a four in maths or english um, in gcses 
uh, is a real problem in terms of reducing your probability of going on to do A-levels or BTECs or going to higher education. Uh, and we just don't have at least consistent, consistently the paths across the country to allow people to recover uh, from tripping in at some of these hurdles. And, and I think you're right, Becky, that you know, you'd think that this, if anything, was an opportunity to allow people to do that, given uh, the uh, huge additional hurdles that have been chucked in front uh, of this generation of, um, of of young people, but uh, very sadly, we're 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 well well into extra time here with uh, with this with this podcast. So I'm going to have to bring it to an end. Uh, thank you so much to to Luke Sibietta and Becky Francis, my two guests this week, and you've heard a, a lot in terms of you know, the problems that have been caused uh, for education through this. Uh, through this last year uh, and about the scale of them, but also about the sorts of things that we need to be thinking about to sort them out. And I think the the, the big message that comes across or should come across is that it's big, uh, is a big set of issues, a big set of problems, and we need to think big if we're really going to do something about that. We need to think big in particular in terms of supporting the teaching uh, workforce. Uh, Well, thank you uh, for listening. Uh, For all of our latest work at the IFS, please visit www.ifs.org.uk. And to further support our work, please consider becoming a supporter of the IFS uh, for as little as £5 a month. You can find a link with further information in the episode description. Thank you for listening and stay well.